the need for cross-border transaction flows is just going to increase. So if you are a PSP, which is well positioned to serve other PSPs or marketplaces in such an alternative uh, cross-border payments flow model, you, you have a very good success rate or very good chances of disrupting the space. Welcome back to another episode of In Check with Fintech. This week we are joined by Anupam Majumdar, who is a principal with Flagship Advisory Partners, a boutique consultancy and merger and acquisition advisory firm. Anupam is a senior payments advisor with 16 years of deep payments advisory experience across Europe and Asia. He has advised numerous PE firms, banks, PSPs, card schemes, fintech and investment firms on payments, M&A and growth strategy. This is the second half of the two-part podcast series with Anupam. So if you haven't heard the first part yet, make sure to check it out by visiting our website or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean pages. Enjoy listening. So which areas are still hot and happening then? You mentioned the global payments, yeah. EVO uh, acquisition, for example. Uh, what areas are there that are still uh, hot and happening right now within the fintech space? Yeah, so there are, I think, four or five areas which are quite hot. So let me talk about them one, one by one. Um, so first of all, I want to talk a bit about the rise in what we call as a buzzword nowadays, which is called embedded finance. Yeah. Um, so embedded finance is not a new concept. Um, so if you look at five to 10 years back, Stripe, Adyen and others, they actually championed server SaaS uh, like Shopify and others uh, to integrate payment services and monetize them and create a new revenue stream and offer that as a branded payment method. I think what is changing now is uh, there's a new breed of fintechs which are labeling themselves as banking as a service fintechs. And they're offering financial services beyond payments. So they're offering a deposits uh, account, a, a lending product, a BNPL product, a card issuing product, you know, a b- bank payment product. Everything could be white labeled. Everything could be branded by a SaaS or by a corporate. And this new dimension of new products and services is giving to new needs, which were previously did not exist because the whole provision, uh, the provisioning fintechs did not exist, right? But now because of this new fintech, there's a new demand being created. And that's where we see a new frontier of growth. So SaaS and corporates uh, will, will see value in integrating their own branded financial products and services in order to create customer loyalty to make their value chains more sticky and to, of course, get a new revenue stream from such products. So that's actually one big theme that we see picking up. Um, we actually saw a lot of funding also going into such bass fintechs in the last couple of years. Um, a number of new players are also coming in, some which are more specialized in certain specific products, others which have a much, much broader products, for example, Solaris Bank in Germany. Um, so we do see that the, the rise of such uh, banking as a service fintechs will fuel into a kind of a leapfrog demand of embedded finance use cases. Uh, across across corporates and SaaS, so that's kind of the first uh, hot area which we which I wanted to hear about. Yes, even there, right? They're taking it like think of uh, in indeed those infrastructure providers, the Bas companies. Uh, they work with neo banks. Where neo, I can't remember the name yeah. now of the Berlin-based one that recently announced that they unfortunately didn't make it. Uh, but they were powered by one of those infrastructure providers, I think. So they are now also seeing kind of the results of a. Uh, of let's call it crisis or overvaluation of yeah. fintech or bursting of the bubble. No, I think uh, you know as I said that that kind of implication you will you will see it across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a question of relative shock absorption. 
Yeah. Um, from that perspective, I think I think that you were referring to Nuri, the, the crypto. That's the one. Yes, exactly. Crypto yeah. player. I mean, I mean, again, crypto is kind of challenged as an industry currently, given what's happening around the world. But you know, I think when you look at uh, corporates, even brands like Samsung or IKEA or, or Shopify, I mean, these guys want to empower financial services, branded financial services to their clients. So therefore, irrespective of what happens in the macronomy, they will continue to drive customer loyalty or drive new revenues out of new products. So I do see new frontiers being created out of embedded finance um, globally. Yeah, the, the number of use cases are just much larger than maybe what we are already seeing or expanding what is already there in terms of use cases. Exactly, exactly. And although I think a lot of the initial demand was coming from fintechs, mainly neobanks, but you know, the early success of uh, new banks is kind of driving other fintechs to adopt it. The early success of those fintechs is now driving corporates to adopt it. So it's kind of a waves of adoption that we are seeing. But the next new frontier, in my opinion, will be SaaS and corporates. So that's area one. You mentioned four. Yeah. What's area two? Yeah, so that's the first one. The second one is uh, a term, a kind of a fancy term for a previous concept called payment orchestration services. So. Um, you know, multinational merchants who tend to work with a fragmented network of PSPs and acquirers often have struggled to have a silver bullet one-stop shop model where one integration could power them to collect payments across markets. Now, of course, payments, as we know, is a complicated industry. Uh, every market has its own localization challenges. Uh, it, it has different regulations on inflows and outflows. You know, there's compliance, there's a host of integration challenges. So if you're a multinational company, achieving the silver bullet one-stop shop model is not easy. But what has happened now is there's an emergence of this payment orchestration fintechs that simplify the whole infrastructure by abstracting the complexities of managing multiple providers. So they sit in the middle. And they connect a merchant to multiple acquires and PSP, which could be even in a very cross-border setup. So as a merchant, you get one integration. You don't have to uh, have bespoke integrations with several, several PSPs or have several contracts with several PSPs. And that one integration actually fuels you to get your payments collected from any underlying PSP. So this kind of a new business model is getting a bit of a new lift because number one there are a lot of merchants multinational merchants moving now into omni-channel payments and if you have to offer omni-channel you can work with one orchestrator to cut across your in-store online acquires at the back and have one integration for example marketplaces are also fueling a lot of demand um, SaaS companies which want to integrate payments they're also seeing a lot of demand we are also seeing a lot of M&A activity and a lot of funding going into payment orchestration fintechs. Uh, so, for example, Payoneer recently bought Optile. Um, I think it happened a couple of years back. But, you know, this is a hotbed where this is becoming a hot topic because they're actually serving a lot of upcoming needs for multinationals. Yeah, I mean, it's super obvious or it sounds super obvious to me. Like, OK, that's something that makes sense. Why didn't we do that before? We had... Um... Nabil from Norber on the show uh, a couple uh, months ago, and he was saying, look, one, it's very complex, and two, you need very high volumes because the margins are so low. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But yeah, indeed, it, it is a very interesting area. Uh, I think, okay, so we have embedded finance, payment orchestration. Yeah, the third one is B2B cross-border payments. Now, business-to-business -business payments has always been extremely manual process-heavy, 
And it's a it's a space which has been traditionally been served by banks. So banks would rely on correspondent banking hops uh, to process a transaction from one corridor to another corridor. The result is those correspondent banking relationships are extremely time-consuming, costly. You know, it actually creates a lot of overheads for a business. Now that space is getting more and more disrupted by fintechs, which are serving through alternate correspondent banking models. So for example, in Europe, Banking Circle or Currency Cloud, um, they, they create local entities in, in different jurisdictions and they have a kind of a own platform for inflow and outflow and they treat a cross-border transaction as two domestic flows, right? So that that is creating a lot of value for a business because your fees are, are drastically down your visibility into your cross-border payments is actually almost real time. You have more certainty over the transaction. And uh, today, I think approximately 85% of the B2B transaction volumes in cross-border are being served by banks, but increasingly these fintechs are taking share away from banks. So I think that's an area which we think will continue to be a hotbed. With more and more e-commerce happening in APAC, in LATAM, you know, there's increased digitization and even in Middle East, for example, the need for cross-border transaction flows is just going to increase. So if you are a, a, a PSP, which is well positioned to serve other PSPs or marketplaces in such an alternative uh, cross-border payments flow model, you, you have a very good success rate or very good chances of disrupting this space. Isn't it also sending money? across to uh, family down home, and that's also cross-border payments, right? Correct. So these PSPs could also serve uh, remittance companies. Yeah. So they could be the backbone, the infrastructure backbone of remittance companies, because today remittance companies rely on banks. So you could actually take that whole share off onto your books and actually even amplify the customer experience. Is there specific examples? I mean, you mentioned banking circle, currency clouds. Um, have you seen much M&A activity there or specific investments that, that happened recently that show the potential of this uh, part of the industry? Yeah, I mean, th- this is also an area where we, the last four or five years, we saw a lot of M&A activity in the past. Um, so a lot of private equity investors, you know, they, they, they have pumped money in companies like MoneyGram, uh, companies like Banking Circle and others. Recently, EQT, uh, you know, they also tried to position for funding for for Banking Circle, for example. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of um, funding activity that's happening. Um, the, the market is still pretty wide open because the addressable opportunity is huge. Um, there are also PSPs that provision certain corridors, but there are also corridors where uh, you know, it's typically underserved. So there are companies like Neum now, Tunes, uh, which which have a kind of a sweet spot in specific corridors like emerging markets or the Middle East or Africa. But I think this is a space where we will anticipate further consolidation in the coming period. So I think the end state would be one global champion, which has got uh, a breadth of uh, services across corridors globally. There you can serve any business, right? But that that reality has not been achieved today. There's still fragmentation in terms of who plays where. And therefore, that's an area where I think from an M&A standpoint, we look at it very, very optimistically. But I mean, with all due respect, isn't that something that we've been shouting out about payments as well for a good couple of years, right? Where we right. said, yeah, there's going to be one play. But the, the pie is so big. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I have to serve 7 billion people. Maybe it's even eight now. I'm not sure of the exact count of number of uh, 
people on this uh, on this planet. But um, I mean, we've been saying about payments as well. This could, could take another 20, 30, 40, maybe it never becomes uh, a state where it's one uh, big player, right? Or do you, do you be really believe that there will be one big winner? No, I think it will take a while before there's only yeah. one winner. I mean, the consolidation story will continue. I mean, that that's that's clear. Yeah. But the question is, yeah, how fast and how 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 much does it take? That's anyone's guess, to be honest. But I think cross-border payments, that's an area which has been untapped. So it's an area where, you know, you'll still see more and more fintechs coming in before you start seeing a very strong level of M&A activities happening. But um, definitely a hot area from, from our perspective. Before I'm going to ask you, which of these four is the hottest uh, area, you think? What is uh, area number four? Yeah, so the last one has got to do with uh, pay, uh, fraud and KYC fintechs. Mm. Well, that's that's always an area which has excited me because I always found that that's an area which is um, difficult for me to understand. But recently, we have been doing a, a couple of projects in that domain, and we looked at um, these kind of fintechs and understand who do they serve, what is the white space that they're serving into. Now, the the, the, the reality is. Um, the growth in fintechs in general, be that neobank or crypto companies or anyone with a fintech leg, requires um, you know easy onboarding of customers. Number one, number two, because of the new business models, they're amenable to new kinds of fraud. So you require kind of verticalized fintech solutions that could solve for these use cases, right? And that's where we are seeing a lot of new fintechs coming up, um, you know, serving different use cases, be that onboarding supplies in a marketplace or solving for payment fraud or solving for, you know, compliance, AML kind of checks after a transaction happens. And that's an area where in Europe, at least, we have seen a lot of new upcomer, upcoming fintechs. Um, all of them are pretty small today. So therefore, it's a very fragmented market of a lot of players. But very clearly, if you start mapping them into a two-by-two axis, you'll start seeing some of them are highly indexed on one industry than others. A lot of them have their own internal machine learning models and, and, and risk management frameworks. And they are well-positioned to win from very against very traditional players like some of the bigger players you would hear in the fraud space. Yeah, I think uh, at this year's Money 2020, I've not seen as many KYC players as there were this year as ever. Uh, yeah. I think there was one part of the show which was completely just filled to the brim with uh, new KYC companies of which I've never heard of. So there's definitely an opportunity there because why else would there be so many companies starting it, right? Is it easy to differentiate there or is it, yeah, sorry to draw that uh, similarity, but is it an RBMPL where everyone is basically doing the same? No, I think there's a clear distinction in terms of um, you know your technology and platform and your fraud models. I mean, it's it's a it's a subject matter expertise where you need to be uh, a data scientist to understand what happens inside the hood. So often, the success of a fintech depends upon how strong your fraud and risk models are, how well trained they are. You know, how much data points do you actually have in your internal IP? You know, do you have uh, specialization over certain industries like marketplaces, for example, or gaming industry, for example, and having those internal IPs actually dictates the level of differentiation that you can drive in the marketplace. But almost everyone has a very um, modernized tech stack. You know, they all offer API-driven solutions. But I think the differentiation here comes on which verticals you serve, your depth mm -hmm. of your risk models, the depth of your data science departments. So it's it's it's, it's an industry which is you know today if you kind of 
um, look at what's happening. I mean, data science is one of the most high-growing, fast-moving verticals, right? And that that's where these fintechs are also kind of have has their DNA in. So it's a very upcoming area. Um, and also regulations like PSG2, that creates complexities yeah. for merchants, right? So uh, a company would always look at a fraud provider to optimize their user experience, but also minimize fraud. So these fintechs definitely are gaining a lot of relevance today. Yeah, complexity for one is an opportunity for another, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so out of these four areas then, so we have embedded finance or, or banking as a service uh, to payment orchestration. Then we have B2B cross-border payments. And then for fraud and KYC, which of these ones do you think is the hottest right now? Yeah, I would say all of them are hot in their respective models. I mean, it's difficult for me to pick one because I find all of them actually are getting a lot of attention from different clients and different use, in different use cases. Um, it's anyone's guess from here. I mean, uh, the reality is uh, embedded finance is a bit of a, there's a bit of a question mark on what the demand could be, but the potential is clearly there. Uh, payment orchestration clearly serving into a demand which is there imminent. Um, KYC fraud clearly serving into a demand which is imminent and same for B2B cross-border. So difficult for me to prioritize them. But uh, as an investor, if you're looking to uh, invest in fintech stocks or if you're looking at private companies in the fintech sphere, these four should be high on your radar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So this is where still there will be, you're expecting kind of to see still Substantial growth, uh, definitely also in other areas, but maybe not as much in these as in these four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we talked a bit about this, but I'm curious to hear maybe more from a, a macro uh, economic uh, point of view. Kind of right now, we see, like you mentioned, increase in interest rates. Right. Yeah. What do you think the specific impact of that will be on the growth of the fintech industry? Yeah. So I think in general. As I explained previously, the growth in the fintech industry will slow down. The question is how much? And yeah. honestly, we don't know that. Uh, what we do know is uh, in 40 years, we haven't seen such high inflation rates, <laughs> number one, right? Number two, um, in the 1990s, payments was much more correlated to checks and paper instruments and cash. Today, bulk of the payments are highly indexed on digital payments and therefore more susceptible to macronomic shocks. So that, that those are the changes that we see today, right? And with, with central banks kind of raising interest rates, um, there is the expectation that consumer spending will go down. Like buoyant consumer spending, which was there the last couple of years, that will not be sustainable, right? Number one. Number two, I think... Um, you know, investors are also rebalancing their investments away from risky assets like crypto to more traditional, more traditional, let's say, risk-free assets. Mm -hmm. And when those kinds of things happen, I think we, we potentially anticipate that uh, there's going to be a bit of a slowdown in general in the economy. Whether it's a recession or not, we don't know, but at least there's a slowdown. And therefore, to my other point, I think in general, we will see a kind of a sluggish growth in the whole fintech and M&A funding activities, uh, M&A will not completely shut down. I think M&A will continue. So the four areas that I highlighted will remain hot. So mm -hmm. we will continue to see M&A and funding, investor funding in those sectors. I think um, uh, to, to, to the other point, uh, you know, there will be basically uh, a bit of a challenge on BNPL and other lending kind of fintechs. So sustaining their business model becomes a bit more challenging um, uh, in, in the in the long run. 
M&A might also shift a bit more towards public companies because public companies are now cheaper. And uh, a lot of investors might think of taking a public company back private. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are the broad observations of how I see the, the industry panning up in the coming months. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, uh, where IPOs might be delayed, it could actually be a great time to buy companies now, right? Because they are valued much less than they were, let's say, a year ago. So you get better value for your money. Yeah, I mean, if you are looking at a business model which is very sustainable, cash flow positive, low risk appetite, profitable, yes, for sure, it's it's good time to buy. Also, if you look at public companies being traded at lower than numbers in 2021, for example, if that's a good buy, investors will go for them. So there, there will be activity for sure. And I mean, in general, I think to just track a contrast, what we saw in 2021 compared to that, there will be a bit of a slowdown, but uh, you know, it will continue to sustain. Yeah. Well, you, you probably have a very, you will probably and obviously have a very close kind of uh, view into what's going on within the M&A market, right? So without obviously mentioning any names, do you see activity that is surprising or is it obvious of the stuff that you see going on right now in the market, the conversations that are, being held uh, or do you think there will be a couple of surprises coming up in the next month's year so? yeah so so far we have not been surprised <laughs> no okay. it's uh, not been surprising in fact the theme that i just mentioned is a reflection of what we are seeing uh close to the actual 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 reality in the market right so um you know investors moving into buying public companies taking them private or investors investing in those four areas that i mentioned we are seeing that. I mean, those things uh, are some things that will continue to be relevant in the coming months as well. But yes, broad-based um, fintech funding into any any business model, that I think has stopped pretty much. So there's a bit of a slowdown that has trickled down this year. For young fintech founders, and something that I've noticed is that they're still... Do you see normally there were series A, B, C of anywhere between, let's say, 10 to 50 million, right? Uh, and it was all funding being put in. What you see now is you just see, all right, yeah, we had a series B, 50 million, but five of that is actual funding, 45 million is debt. Why do companies now take that risk of taking on such a high debt? Because it seems to me right now, of course, it's always easy to talk uh, from the outside, right? To say, is that the best decision to be made? I'm sure that they do their assessment, but why is that? Why do why do companies take that risk, you think? Yeah, it depends on where the company's position, what life cycle a company is in. So for example, if a company is in a growth stage for a business model that has been extremely sustainable and you, you want growth at any expense, right? And you are kind of bootstrapped for funding and you need that. So you, you might take that risk, but I, I would be hesitant if you think of yourselves taking that risk if you are in a business model which is susceptible to risks in the coming period, meaning if you're a BNPL fintech, you know, taking that kind of a risk is kind of a suicide attempt, to be honest. But if you're a much more sustainable business, you have a good traction in the last three or four years, you want to grow, exp you know, expanding markets one by one and you need funding and you understand that this is still going to be a highly leveraged deal you might still go forward because you know you you do a kind of believe in the fundamentals of your business model so That's like fun. like like in b2b cross-border payments you know that the addressable opportunity is big and large yeah. and 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 no matter what happens that that addressable opportunity is not going to go down it's still there so yeah that makes sense for a company in those shoes to go and take that risk, but not 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 for a mass company, for example. 
Uh, surprisingly, I noticed it the most in the, in the BNPL space. So that's what what surprises me so much. But uh, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure that these companies have done their assessment. But this this is uh, this gives some insight at least. It's a it's a good uh, explanation. I'm sure that they. I think if you have confidence in your business model, even as yeah. BNPL, maybe they have found a way to differentiate. So let's give them the yeah. benefit of the doubt. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we do see B two B BNPL companies becoming relevant, which was not a theme we saw five years back. But isn't so that I mean, isn't that just working capital in a different way phrasing it? That's yeah. correct. It's kind of invoice financing or invoice factoring. Um, again, you, you don't take your own balance sheet risks there. You just act as a middleman. Yeah. But uh, the opportunity is interesting because you're serving into an upcoming theme called B2B marketplaces, where which is also getting a lot of traction in addition to e-commerce marketplaces for consumers. Um, so companies like, uh, I think in Germany, you have Billy, I think in Netherlands, you have Biller, which were, were acquired by Banking Circle recently and others. You know, th- these guys are trying to create a niche for themselves. Again, an untapped, op- untapped market, you know, market dominated by banks, uh, fundamentally strong because they're not taking balance sheet risks. So from that perspective, it's it's a good uh, business model to be in. Yeah. Hey, before we close the show. I think it was a very insightful discussion. What would you say are the top three takeaways for the listeners uh, of this discussion? Yeah, I mean, I think to summarize, uh, maybe just to paint the picture, the first takeaway is that, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic made the fintech industry a very attractive industry for investors. So there was a a lot of investor funding. There was a lot of IPOs. uh, Funding valuations got kind of into an investor bubble, you can say it that way. And then what's happened in contrast to what happened in in the COVID pandemic today with high inflation rates and rising interest rates, uh, we're probably heading into an environment of slowdown in investor funding and M&A. This will basically challenge certain fintechs who are looking for growth or who are very early in their their startup scales. I think the outlook is not that grim overall. If you are in verticals like B2B cross-border payments or payment orchestration services, embedded finance or KYC or compliance, you still have got pockets of growth, which will continue into the next uh, six or seven months. I think from an m standpoint, we do expect a slowdown, but it will not stop. Investors will continue to pivot uh, to engage in new kinds of deal activity, possibly taking public companies private, but also investing in these pockets. Let's end on that high. That's the kind of M&A and investment is still going on in the fintech yeah, space, right? There absolutely. will still be growth, but it will have, uh, yeah, tremendously maybe slowed down compared to last year where we saw so much funding uh, going on, uh, especially in those four areas. There's still a big opportunity. So I think that's uh, really important to uh, to take away. Um, thanks, Anupam, for being on the show. It's been great to have you uh, to get yeah, uh, insights into uh, yeah the market, how you see the market, what kind of activity you see, uh, the areas which are still hot and happening. Um, and um, until next time. Yeah, thanks a lot, Rocky. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, I hope this uh, this actually brings uh, some, some insights uh, from the m and and Investor Marketplace. I think so. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of In Check with Fintech. If you enjoyed this episode, hit the like button and leave us a comment below. We'll be having more industry leaders soon, so don't forget to subscribe as well in order to keep updated with the latest episodes of our podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'd like to leave you with a more serious message from our partner Freer Girl, who are dedicated to founding child prostitution and impunity all over the world. Hi, I'm Eveline, CEO and founder of Freer Girl. 
Every day, two million children, especially girls, are being held captive worldwide. They are locked up and exploited in brothels, dance bars, or online, forced into sexual exploitation. Their freedom is taken away together with their youth, family, and future. We are dedicated to fight sexual exploitation of children by rescuing these girls. Please join us, unlock their freedom, and unlock your potential by becoming a business partner. Please visit freegirl.com for more information. Thank you.